For those of you that are still in shock over that bright, shiny ball out there in the sky, it's, uh, it's okay. It happens once in a while, and uh, don't get used to it, but anyway. <clears throat> we're going to go to the book of Ruth, and we're going to go there quickly. It's always great to uh, get these updates and reports and everything, uh, but we do want to have some time here in the Word. We're going to go to the book of Ruth. The last time that we were together, uh, a month ago, I don't expect that all of you remember what I said. I had to look it up myself. <laughs> so let me just refresh you briefly. Uh, we talked a little bit about the theocracy of the Old Testament kingdom of Israel. Theos is God and ocracy is rule. God rule. God wanted to be the king of Israel. That's the way he set it up. He was the king. They were his people. He was their God. They worshiped him. They served him. He ruled. He gave instructions through Moses, but Moses wasn't the ruler. He gave instructions through Joshua and leadership through Joshua. Joshua was not the ruler. God was the king. And that was to be that way and to function that way by Israel's faithfulness to the covenant through the book of Judges. But we all know that the book of Judges was a time of spiritual disaster for the nation of Israel. The book of Ruth takes place during the time of the book of Judges. We talked also last time about the covenant that God made and reinforced and repeated in the book of Deuteronomy, especially chapters 28 and 29. We don't have time to repeat that information tonight, but if you haven't read those chapters, please do. I believe the book of Ruth will make more sense to you. The first section of chapter 28 in Deuteronomy is the blessings that God wanted to bring upon his people. And he told the people, if you walk in obedience to me, I will bless you. It's that simple. The second section, beginning with verse 15 and following, is if you do not obey me, you will not believe how difficult I'm going to make your life. I will do that to you so that you will turn around and come back to me. If you don't read those chapters, I think you'll have difficulty with many of the Old Testament passages and why God's people went through some of the things that they went through. As we open the pages of the book of Ruth, we find a key, I believe, in the first verses, and we mentioned this last time. In verse 1 of the book of Ruth, now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. We talked last time about that famine and about the first character that we meet, Elimelech, which name means, my God is king. But this man who had the name, my God is king, decided to go live somewhere else other than where his king wanted him to live. And I believe it was a covenant failure on Elimelech's part in several ways. Let me just repeat those. There was a famine in the land. According to Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 14, if the people were walking in obedience, there would not be a famine. If there was a famine, someone was living in disobedience. The response is not to leave and run away from the problem. The response is to turn to God in the problem and ask God to show the people where the problem is. 
this happened at Jericho. When Joshua and the people went to Jericho and God gave them the victory, there was one man unknown to others. There was one man who kept some things from Jericho that were forbidden. And he took them back to his tent and he hid them under the floor of his tent thinking no one will know when this is all over. I'll have these things and I'll have a little extra money. And, uh, you know, my wife and I can go to Florida for vacation or something and, and uh, whatever he thought. And then they went up and fought the next people at Ai, and they were turned back and defeated, and several people were killed. And, and, and Joshua and the people went to the Lord and said, Lord, where were you? And he said, stop talking to me about where I am and look among yourselves. There's sin in the camp. That is the response that God is looking for. Look among yourselves and find the sin in the camp. Elimelech failed to do that. Instead, in verse 1, he went to sojourn in the land of Moab. Well, they're there, uh, and Naomi ends up being there around 10 years. We're not told how long Elimelech was there before he died. But after he died and left her with the two sons, then those sons took for themselves Moabite women as wives. Now, that was not strictly forbidden in the Old Testament. It was forbidden for Israelites to marry Canaanites, but the Moabites were not considered part of the Canaanites. The Moabites are actually distant relatives of Israel. Uh, Israel has had more problems in history with its relatives than with any other groups of people. That's still true today. Most of the people that are against them are their distant, distant relatives. Well... We have two young men who, I believe, sort of pattern their lives after their father. Now, we're not going to take a lot of time on Malon and Chilion. Uh, there really is very little about them to start with, but both of their names, uh, let me mention this. It's, we're not entirely sure exactly what the names meant, but the name of one was something like weakness, and the name of the other was like fading or like almost dying. So this is the name they were given from childhood. So we wonder, did Naomi perhaps give birth to these boys prematurely? Were they perhaps very, very frail at birth? Were they perhaps sickly? Were they, there was, was there something that was wrong uh, about them that they were given names that were not names of character and strength? They were not names named after God. They were not named in some great way. They were named focusing on the problem. Does that maybe give you a hint of Elimelech and Naomi? Not, they didn't name the youngest, the, the, the oldest one who was weak, my God is able. Or strength in weakness. You know, some name like that. No, they just named them ready to drop over and weak. So I really think we're getting a, a, a picture of the spiritual condition of Elimelech and Naomi as we go into this chapter. These two young men choose Moabite women. The danger of choosing foreign women as wives of any Israelite was that those wives came usually out of a pagan culture where they had pagan gods. This would be like a believer of the New Testament era marrying an unbeliever. That's forbidden in the New Testament. And, and for good reason, we understand the wisdom of that. A house divided against itself cannot stand. For two to become one, there must be the agreement of spirit and heart. 
And interestingly enough, we do get a glimpse later that one of these Moabite women went back to her gods after the son died, which means if they had stayed married and he had survived, he would have been dealing with a woman whose heart was really worshiping idols in his household. That would have been a problem. And that indeed was the problem and why it was not wise to marry Moabite women. Well, they are there for about 10 years. And then in verse 6, we have a transition. She arose with her daughters-in-law. This is Naomi. Uh, well, let, let me read verse 5. Then both Melon and Chilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. So the focus switches to uh, some information about Naomi. So she arose in verse 6 with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. I think we need to think about that for a minute and put that alongside the statement in verse 1 that there was famine in the land and that Elimelech went to sojourn in the land of Moab. If God could visit his people and cure the famine in verse 6, why couldn't Elimelech fall upon his face and ask God to solve the famine in verse 1? Where were the men to stand up and say, we need to repent and turn to God. If there's a famine, there's a problem. If you and I are sitting here tonight and the lights go out, guess what? We'll know there's no electricity. We may not know why or where the problem is, but we can see there's no electricity. Maybe we need to think of, oh, let's go. I know that church up the road, they've got lights. Let's go up there. No, let's find out what's wrong with the lights here and fix the lights here. And I believe this is the failure of Elimelech. Now, Naomi, maybe she would have stayed in Moab if her husband and sons would have survived. We don't know, but she hears that there's food once again in the land of Israel, so she goes back. Now, one of the things that happened probably when they left, that's not given to us in the book, but it's implied later, is that when, she, when they left Bethlehem, the family property, which was their part of the tribal allotment of the tribe of Judah, it would always remain technically in their name. And at the next year of Jubilee, every 50 years, 49, 50 years, that land would revert back to their family. But while they were vacating the country, they would lease that land. Now, they, they called it selling the land sometimes. But it really was a lease. So you know Jewish people in history well enough to know that they were shrewd enough to figure out how many years it was till 49 years was up. They're not going to pay you the same price in year 48 that they would pay you in year one. And, and so she, in whatever way, he and his wife, Elimelech, Naomi, or, yeah, Naomi, they leased out the land, gave someone else the right to use it for probably until the next year of Jubilee. So verse 7, she leaves and heads home. Now, I want us to take time to think about Naomi here for a few minutes. Um, and and I, don't, I don't bring these things up because I like to bash people, but I think we need to look at what the Scriptures say about these people and their character and where they were spiritually. Because one of the great themes of the book of Ruth is the mercy of God. 
And, and the, the, the mercy of God is the more glorious when it's poured out upon those who are so unworthy. And so Naomi is not painted here in a glowing and wonderful picture for us. Naomi has a mixture of some good things and some bad things. As they're getting ready to leave, the daughter-in-laws say, we'll go with you, etc. But in verse 8, Naomi said to the two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she wishes them well. She acknowledges that they've been good daughter-in-laws. They've treated her well. They have treated her sons well. Um, but she says, may you go back and find peace and rest in the house of a husband. In other words, I hope you can get remarried. And she wishes them that among their own people. So she wishes them well, and that sounds good. But it's interesting that she didn't invite them to come back to where her God and her people had the blessing of God under the covenant. Um, and we're going to get to Ruth in a few minutes. Ruth has, the Lord is working in her heart and she wants to come back, but I don't think it's because Naomi is necessarily making it look, making the Lord look appealing, all right? So they say, no, we want to go with you. Naomi says, no. And now in verses 11 through 13, she focuses on the emptiness that is in her life, the apparent emptiness. She says, you know, why do you want to go back with me? Long story short, it, it, I'm, I'm old enough I don't have any prospects for marriage, but even if I got old enough, wouldn't be able to have any sons, and even if I had sons, would you hang around long enough for them to grow old enough to, to marry you? It's like, come on, girls, go get a husband. Don't wait for me to have more sons for you. It, it's, not gonna, it's not looking real good right now. <laughs> so would you wait? Now notice the last statement of verse 13. Know my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Well, there's a faith outlook for you. When you have a daughter-in-law who has lost her husband, it's probably not a good thing to say, it's harder for me than for you. Okay, Naomi had three losses. Each of the girls had more than one. There's losses in the family, but they each had lost a spouse. But she's, I believe she's focused on herself here. The hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Now, in one sense, perhaps he had. You know, Deuteronomy 28, you bail out of the land, you bail out of the covenant, maybe the hand of the Lord was the very reason why Elimelech and the sons died. I won't say it's not. Perhaps that's a true statement. But she certainly is looking at it from a negative perspective, wouldn't you say? She's not looking at this and saying, wow, what, what is God doing? How can I respond to this? What good thing is going to come out of this? Verse 14, they lifted up their voices and wept. The girls wept. Uh, Orpah decides to go back, but Ruth hangs on and clings to her. 
And uh, in verse 15, Naomi says, Behold, she says this to Ruth, Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. That's significant. Return after your sister-in-law. Go back to your people. And what's she also saying to your gods? What kind of an invitation is that? It wasn't the invitation, come and find my God. So Naomi is kind of striking out here on some of these opportunities. <clears throat> now, we're going to jump ahead to verse 19. They get back to Bethlehem. We're going to backtrack in a minute with Ruth, but let's just follow Naomi as she goes through this chapter. They get to Bethlehem. They come to Bethlehem, and all the city was stirred because of them. The, uh, the telegraph and, you know, the Twitter accounts were buzzing because Naomi was back in town, and pretty soon everybody knew it. And the women said, is this Naomi? Now, maybe they said that because she looked like she had been through the war. Maybe they just said it because it's like, wow, 10 years. I mean, you know, it's like, wow, that's a good question. Is this Naomi? And she said to them, now remember that the name Naomi means pleasant. And she says to them, do not call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Mara. Sorry for all of you ladies named Mary. I didn't do that. It's just what the name means. Bitter. Bitterness. Bitter. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Why? For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me pleasant, since the Lord has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? Very quickly, she's believing some lies. I went out full. Oh, really? In a time of famine, you left the covenant. That's full? You went to a foreign land where they worship other gods and you had no fellowship with your people who worship the same God that you worship. That's full. She's looking at things in an earthly perspective. I had my husband and my sons. My life was full. No, her life wasn't full. She was deceived. And then she says, the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has brought me back empty. My husband is gone. My sons are gone. I've got nothing. Sorry, Ruth, who by the end of the book we find out is what? Better than seven sons. Her life right now is full, but she can't see it. God is bringing her back, and he is just about ready to open the clouds and pour out upon her eternal blessing, and she can't see it. She's not looking. The Almighty has afflicted me. At this point in her life, Naomi is assuming that she knows everything there is to know about what's going on. She's got it all figured out. That's always a dangerous position for us to take. Because last I checked, we were not infinite in our knowledge. You might have a teenager who thinks he or she is, but they are not. Now, let's backtrack and look at Ruth very quickly. Um, <clears throat> in verse 10, Ruth and Orpah both said, we will surely return with you to your people. Naomi says no. Uh, verse 14, they lift up their voices, there's weeping. 
Orpah turns and leaves, but Ruth stays. Verse 16, Ruth says, Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. I've said recently to somebody who's taking care of their elderly relative, doing a wonderful work of helping a person through some difficult years at the end of their life. I said to you, I said, I commended them for what they were doing. And I said, everyone I know would like to have a daughter like you. You're doing a wonderful, wonderful thing. Ruth was a gem. There's, this is the longest narrative of a woman in the Old Testament. That's, a, that's amazing in itself. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will, be, will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And the ultimate, the ultimate statement of Ruth's spiritual position, your God will be my God. It wasn't because Naomi was such a charming, winsome person. But somewhere, Ruth has understood and seen the God of Israel is the God she wants to have as her God. She is turning away from the gods of Moab and turning to the God of Israel. That is an incredible thing. And we have here, I believe in the Old Testament, a glimpse of the church of the New Testament age. And I'm not saying this is... Uh, a prophecy or anything, but, but God has reached out to the other nations of the world with the gospel and invited us to come into his household. And we had that picture a few times in the Old Testament where a few Gentiles are brought in, and this is one of them. It's a delightful story as we continue to go down through it. Ruth wants Ruth's Ruth wants Naomi's God. Verse 17, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. I'm here to help you for the rest of my life. I want to help you. She was a better daughter than her own sons had been. May the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. So Naomi saw that she was determined. It's interesting. It doesn't say she was rejoicing because of her statement of faith. It says she saw that she was determined, so she let her come. Now we jump to the end of the chapter. So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And we're going to pause there for a few minutes, because right now is getting close to the time of the year in Israel when we're at barley harvest. So it's very Interesting that, this, uh, that we're going through this book right now. Now, we're going to take time to pause here a little bit this evening on some things about the barley harvest because as you read the next two chapters, I think this will help you to continue to grasp what's going on. The next time we're together, we're going to look at Boaz for the first time. He's introduced in chapter 2. We're going to look at him next time, and then we'll wrap it up uh, on our last time together. In the land of Israel, um, the weather cycle is different than what it is here, at least in the, the bulk of Israel. Up in the northern mountains, they do get a pretty nasty winter. But the bulk of Israel does not have the kind of winter you and I are used to here. 
It is the kind of winter where in the fall they plant the crops that they're going to harvest the next spring. And the winters are mild enough, there may be a little bit of snow, but the winters are mild enough that things grow through the winter. You can't grow in the summertime because they go for six months out of the year with no rain. Every summer. Even in the wettest parts of the country, in some parts of Israel, get gets 40 to 60 inches of rain a year. That's more than we get. Now, not very much of it does, but they go for six months of the summer with no rain, the, the Middle Eastern sun beating down out of a cloudless sky for six months on the ground. By the fall, that ground is as hard as a rock. And then come the early rains in the fall. The rains come, the ground softens up, and the farmers are able to break ground because the rains, the early rains, have softened the ground. They go out, they scatter the seed on the ground, and it starts to grow. The wheat, the barley, uh, whatever else uh, they're growing. And then through the winter, uh, there is occasional rain, but it really doesn't rain as much then until around March and April. And then you have the latter rains. So the farmer plants in the early rains, and then he waits for the latter rains. Now, by this time, the grain is high, it's got a stalk on it, and it's starting to put seed in the head. But if it doesn't get some rain in the spring, the seeds aren't going to develop. The ones that develop are going to be too small to be worth harvesting, and you're going to have a very hungry year. You need the latter rains to fill out the stalk and the grain in the harvest. And so, March and April, the rains come, the grain thrives and fills out the head. And then in May, the clouds disappear, the rain turns off, and the eastern wind off of the Arabian desert starts to come from the east over the hills of Jordan, and it starts to scorch the land of Israel. And it dries out the grain very quickly, just at the right time, when it's ripe. And so in the month of May and early June, in Israel in ancient times is when they would have the barley harvest. Now our most familiar reference to the barley harvest is in conjunction with the Jewish day of Pentecost, which was every year, Penta is five, so it's a reference 50 days after what we call Easter Passover, 50 days after Passover on the Jewish calendar was the Feast of Pentecost and it was related to the barley harvest. Huh, that's interesting. So it had to do with rejoicing in the bounty of what God had provided. Now, um, some of you grew up in farm country, and there's nothing new here that you haven't seen before. In fact, some of you probably worked up a few blisters with one of these things at one point in time. How many of you know what this is? Say it. Nope. This is a scythe. Now, sometimes when you read your Bible, I don't know which words the translators used at which time. I don't know how ancient the technology is. It's wood and steel. That's it. This is a sickle, smaller, handheld, back-breaking tool. If you've spent a day behind one of these things, you know what I'm talking about. The only nice thing about these is if you're cutting uphill, then you don't have to bend over as far. I know that because I grew up in Pennsylvania. <clears throat> okay? 
If you have a hill to cut, you don't start at the top and go down. You start at the bottom and go up. It's a whole lot easier on your back. This is something that would be used in the field if they didn't have these. I don't know if they had these in the time of Ruth. For those of you that haven't used these or seen these used, um, the scythe is used in a, in a pulling and sweeping motion, and you keep it down close to the ground, and it cuts off the grain stalk. After it's ripe, it's all golden, yellow, dried out, and you're, you go along, you cut off a swath, and then you step forward and cut off another swath. Now, they would work in teams. When someone cuts the swath, then another person would gather up the grain. They make these in, in still in medieval ancient times. They would put a, a set of uh, wooden kind of a, a basket on here. Uh, it looked like a big pitchfork so that as you swipe the grain, it would also gather it. And then you would stop and somebody would take that bundle off of there and tie it into a sheaf. A sheaf of grain was a bunch of stalks, and you would take a couple pieces of the grain and tie it around it, stand it up in the field and put those together, and you would just keep going, working your way down through the field. If they didn't have those, and you can stand up using that, it's a good workout, but you at least get to stand up. If they didn't use that, then they had to bend over and, and use a hand sickle, and that's a lot of work. I suspect that Ruth put a lot of hours in with one of these. There were two ways that widows were able to get grain from the farmer's fields. Um, and it, by the way, Deuteronomy 24, there's instructions in there. I think it's uh, verse maybe 19, 17, 19. There's a little section in there describing what the farmers were to do. If the farmers were going through with the scythe and dropped some of the grain, they weren't supposed to pick it up. They're supposed to let it lay there. When they got to the corners, don't trim the corners completely. Along the edge, leave some grain standing. And no grain, even today's corn and grain harvesters do not do a complete job. You walk out through a cornfield after the harvester has gone through, and you'll, you, you see why the geese land there, and there's a lot of corn to eat laying on the ground. And so the widows would come along. If the grain was still standing, they had to cut it. If it was laying on the ground, they could pick it up, and they could keep it. And this was one of God's ways of taking care of the widows. The grape harvest was similar to that, wheat harvest, barley harvest, and so on. But at the end of the day, and if you read chapter 2, it tells us that Ruth uh, went out into the field, and she worked until evening in the field gathering up grain. They took a break in the midday. Uh, you're familiar with the Mexican siesta idea. In the Middle East, in the morning they would go out to the grain fields right after the dew had evaporated. You don't want to harvest grain with any moisture because you're going to have a mold problem in trying to store it. So you wait until the dew is off the grain, you go out in the morning, and in the heat of the sun you start to cut the grain. By about 1, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, you're ready for a break. And the wise people would take one. And you find that in the book of Ruth being reflected. Then they would go back out after the heat of the day and finish working into the evening. But chapter 2 tells us that after Ruth worked all day into the evening harvesting the grain, then she had to thresh the grain. You see, what she had so far was just a big pile of straw with the grain attached. Well, she doesn't want to carry all that straw home. So somewhere there was a threshing floor. Whether this is the same threshing floor that Boaz would use, 
the farmers who own property, they would have a large threshing floor, perhaps even as big as this room. And they would spread the grain out on there, and then they would have a post in the middle. They would tie oxen to it, and the oxen would be led around in circles, and they would tread out the grain. That's the easy way to do it. R Ruth didn't have an ox. She also didn't have that much grain. So she probably used something like this. This is called a flail. This is not the only way to, to, to thresh grain. But basically, you would lay the grain on a big flat rock area somewhere, and you use the flail, and you flip it. And you keep pounding the grain, pounding the straw, knocking. That's what happens when you have old leather. Okay, so that's a tool I don't use because I don't, I don't have grain. But you can see what she had to do. After she was done working all day in the field getting the straw with the grain on it, then she had to get the grain off the straw. And then she got to take it home. And then they got to make something for dinner. Oh, but they had to grind the grain first. So the picture in the book of Ruth, of Ruth, is of a woman who's willing to do tremendously hard work to take care of her mother-in-law and to survive. She was not afraid of hard work. She just rolled up her sleeves and got in there and did it. She is an admirable woman. She is a woman of character and quality and some of the statements that Boaz makes that he has heard about her in chapter 2 are wonderful reflections of her character. Uh, verse 11, Boaz replied to her, All that you had done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. And how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. What a testimony. What a beautiful testimony this woman has. In the midst of a very difficult time, when she wasn't surrounded by entirely exemplary people. So as you read, I trust that you will continue to gain insight and understanding of the culture in the day. Uh, we're going to talk about Boaz and some of the cultural aspects of the kinsman redeemer the next time. There's one more little thing I want to share with you in verse 13. She said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, speaking to Boaz, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. The people of ancient Israel were not exactly the nicest neighbors. They did not take kindly to strangers in their midst. Isn't that sad? But they had that reputation. And for, there were probably other women gleaning in these fields. Other widows, older people, I don't know. There might have been, uh, been orphans out there trying to find some food. When those... Jewish people and the other maids in the field who were actually working for Boaz, when they saw a foreign woman, they probably treated her with disdain. They probably treated her with contempt. They may not have wanted anything to do with her, which is 
why Boaz makes sure his servants understand how they are supposed to treat Ruth. You look at the instructions that Boaz gives you there, uh, gives to his servants there, and it gives you a glimpse of how poorly they would treat a foreigner. So next time, we're going to look at Boaz. We're going to look at the Old Testament concept of mercy that God wanted his people to display. And Boaz is one of the greatest examples of mercy in the entire Old Testament. I, I trust that you enjoy reading about this man and learning about what he did. And uh, we will continue. Next week is Mother's Day. So it won't be next week. It will be the week after. So what a great book to be reading around the time of Mother's Day. I trust that God will enrich you as you continue. Let's, let's pray together.